You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 36 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. In the last show, we covered the bombardment of Fort Sumter by the Confederate artillery batteries ringing Charleston Harbor. And then we ended the episode with Major Robert Anderson and his men evacuating the battered fort on April 14, 1861. Before the firing on Sumter, Jefferson Davis, the President of the Confederate States of America, had held on to a slim hope that there might be a peaceful separation from the rest of the Union. President Abraham Lincoln, who did not believe the South had a right to leave the Union, had wished there might somehow be a peaceful reconciliation with the seceded states. But once the first shots of the war were fired in Charleston, those hopes and wishes were shattered. What followed was an appalling bloodletting that lasted four long years and in which over 600,000 soldiers lost their lives. At Antietam, the number of casualties in one day of battle was four times the number of American casualties on the Normandy beaches on D-Day, June 6, 1944. But courage and suffering and dying were not limited to the three million soldiers who put on blue and gray uniforms. During the war, an unknown number of civilians, mostly in the South, would also die from the disruption and devastation brought on by the terrible conflict. With the ultimate defeat of the Confederacy and the destruction of the society it represented and defended, the Civil War profoundly reshaped the political, social, and economic landscape of the United States. And so, for better or worse, the bombardment of Fort Sumter in April 1861 was the opening act in the most dramatic, violent, and significant experience in American history. When Major Robert Anderson and the garrison of Fort Sumter on board the Baltic arrived in New York on April 18, 1861, they didn't know what kind of reception they would receive. After all, they had just been defeated in the war's first battle. As the Baltic approached New York Harbor, it was flying Fort Sumter's giant garrison flag. The weary men on the steamer's decks heard a dull booming, and they realized that the batteries along the harbor's mouth were honoring them and their flag with a salute. Then the men saw thousands of people along the shoreline waving flags and cheering. Scores of ships in the harbor joined in, ringing bells or tooting their horns. Once the Baltic docked, Major Anderson stepped ashore, but before he could leave, the men of the Sumter garrison, and even the last of the fort's loyal workmen, lined the ship's decks and rent the air with their cheers. Robert Anderson, with tears streaming down his face, raised his hat to them, and then turned and entered the bustling city so that he could find his family. The Sumter garrison needn't have worried about their reception. They were welcomed home as heroes, and no, none more so than Robert Anderson. Wherever his carriage went, people on New York's sidewalks cheered the hero of Fort Sumter. A few days after the garrison's arrival in the city, there was a patriotic rally held in Union Square, and the star of the event was Major Anderson. 
Police estimated the crowd at between 150,000 and 250,000. It was definitely the largest gathering in the history of the city. At the massive rally, Sumter's smaller storm flag was laid across the arms of George Washington, whose equestrian statue rose above the square, and the multitude cheered the weathered and faded stars and stripes, but they saved their loudest acclamation for Robert Anderson. A New Yorker named George Templeton Strong, who would keep one of the war's most famous diaries, wrote that, quote, the city seems to have gone suddenly wild and crazy, end quote. But the excitement over Anderson and his men was soon over. Other momentous events quickly captured the public's attention. For the day after Sumter's garrison evacuated the battered fort, President Lincoln had issued a call for 75,000 volunteers to put down the rebellion. And then, still while the Baltic was steaming northward, the crucial Upper South State of Virginia had seceded from the Union. While the bombardment of Fort Sumter was going on, the young men enrolled at the Virginia Military Institute were anxious to go off to fight the Yankees. But one of the school's instructors, a West Point graduate and Mexican War veteran named Thomas Jonathan Jackson, told his excited and impatient students to wait. The time for war will come, and that soon, Jackson said. And then he added, and then when it does come, my advice is to draw the sword and throw away the scabbard. In Montgomery, Alabama, Jefferson Davis received a telegram from PGT Beauregard at 2 o'clock on the afternoon of April 13th. It read, Quarters in Sumter all burned down. White flag up. Have sent boat to receive surrender. Davis wired back his congratulations to Beauregard and then added, If occasion offers, tender my friendly remembrance to Major Anderson. Y'all will remember that back when they were young officers serving together in the Army, Jefferson Davis and Robert Anderson had become close friends. Mm, That's right, but it's doubtful Beauregard, as the man on the scene, felt it appropriate to pass along Jefferson Davis's greeting, since Beauregard had, at Davis's orders, just given the Major a good kicking and forced the surrender of Anderson's command. But be that as it may... It's safe to say that Jefferson Davis went to bed that night knowing that Abraham Lincoln in the North would soon retaliate for the bombardment and seizure of Fort Sumter. Before he ordered the firing on Sumter, Davis had held on to a very slim hope that the North would allow the Confederacy to peacefully separate from the Union. But Jefferson Davis was no fool, and so he'd always understood that realistically secession meant war. When he had tried to make his fellow Southerners understand this, the governor of Mississippi had told him, You overrate the risk of war. And Davis had gloomily replied, I only wish I did. Jefferson Davis knew that what the Confederate forces had done in Charleston Harbor was a deliberate and hostile act of war, so he waited to see how Abraham Lincoln would meet force with force. Davis didn't have to wait very long. On April 15th, the day after Anderson and his men evacuated Fort Sumter, Lincoln issued a proclamation that declared the Confederate states in rebellion and called for the loyal states of the Union to provide the federal government with 75,000 militia to put down, quote, combinations too powerful to be suppressed by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings, end quote. When the Confederates opened hostilities, 
Abraham Lincoln had very few means at his disposal to immediately meet force with force and suppress the rebellion. When Fort Sumter was attacked, the United States Army consisted of only about 16,000 officers and enlisted men, and it wasn't as if those men were even all assembled in one place, since almost all of the peacetime Army's units had been broken up piecemeal to garrison forts out west or along the borders. And even if all 16,000 men of the Army were magically assembled in one place, it's doubtful such a relatively small force was likely to put down the rebellion, since by the time Sumter was attacked, it's estimated that the Confederacy already had about 60,000 men under arms. But in April 1861, President Lincoln was in even more of a bind, since Congress was at that moment not in session, and without congressional sanction, Lincoln had no constitutional authority to expand the army. Congress was not scheduled to fully assemble again until December 1861, but constitutionally, a president may call the House and Senate into session when extraordinary circumstances demanded it. This crisis certainly seemed to qualify, so on the same day that Abraham Lincoln called for those 75,000 volunteers, he also ordered Congress to assemble in a special session that summer on the 4th of July. It's interesting that in mid-April, Lincoln summoned Congress into an emergency session, but not until July 4th, more than two months later. Why did he choose that date? Well, it was probably partly out of consideration for the staggered schedule on which congressional elections were held back then. You see, in the olden days, congressional election dates varied from state to state. So, for instance, in 1861, Maryland wouldn't hold its congressional elections until June 13th, and Kentucky not until a week after that. But those elections probably played only a part in Lincoln's calculations, because it seems likely that what the president really wanted was a bit of time to have a free hand to set his war policy up on its feet before Congress met again. William Seward's son, Frederick, in his biography of his father, writes, quote, Congress would be loyal, but it would be a deliberative body, and to wait for many men with many minds to shape a war policy in the debates of an extra session would invite disaster. End quote. In other words, Frederick Seward was hinting that Lincoln purposely set a relatively distant time for the special session so that he, Lincoln, could have some space to begin to shape his war policy without having to consult with Congress. And it's likely Lincoln wanted to act quickly because he, at first, probably thought the raising of an army to suppress the rebellion was all that might be needed to force the secessionists to back down. At the time, it seems the president still hold out onto a slim hope that if the federal government only showed its resolve, then enthusiasm for secession would evaporate, Southern Unionism would reassert itself, and the rebellion would collapse. But without congressional approval, how was Lincoln supposed to raise that army? Well, he did have one option, and that was the federal statute from the year 1795 that had originally delegated to President Washington the authority to call up the militia of the various states in the event of insurrection. And so that's how, on April 15th, the day after Anderson and his men evacuated Fort Sumter, 
Abraham Lincoln issued a proclamation that called for the loyal states of the Union to provide the federal government with 75,000 militia for up to three months to suppress the rebellion of seven southern states, each of which were mentioned by name. South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Florida, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas. Lincoln said that the militia would be enlisted for three months because under the circumstances, that was the statutory maximum amount of time they could be called upon to serve. Two weeks after his first proclamation, though, Lincoln issued a second call, this time for the recruitment of an additional 40 regiments of state volunteers, that is a little over 40,000 men, for three years, and he also called for the expansion of the Navy by 18,000 men and the regular army by eight regiments of infantry and one each of cavalry and artillery. Now, Congress would eventually approve Lincoln's activities retroactively, but it should be noted that nothing in the 1795 statute authorized either the follow-up call for three-year enlistments or the expansion of the Navy and regular army. In his address to the special session of Congress in July, Lincoln would justify his actions largely on the vague basis of the, quote, war power of the government, end quote. Actually, though, the Constitution makes no mention of war power, and so Lincoln seems to have invented both the phrase and its application. In his address to Congress in July, the president said the attack on Fort Sumter left him with no choice, quote, but to call out the war power of the government and so to resist force employed for its destruction by force for its preservation, end quote. But if Abraham Lincoln took those extraordinary measures because he was hopeful that the raising of an army to suppress the rebellion was all that might be needed to force the secessionists to back down, then his hopes were quickly dashed, for in fact, almost the exact opposite happened. Within days of the President's proclamation calling for 75,000 volunteers to suppress the rebellion, the key Upper South State of Virginia voted to leave the Union, to be followed in the weeks to come by three of the other previously wavering slaveholding states. Forced by Lincoln's proclamation to decide between participating in a war to coerce the seceded states or withdrawing from the Union and joining them, Virginia, my home state of Arkansas, Tennessee, and finally North Carolina all decided to cast their lot with the Confederacy. Abraham Lincoln's April 15th proclamation, calling for 75,000 militia to suppress the rebellion, had been followed by communications from the War Department which requested a specific number of men from each state, including the eight slave states still in the Union. The Confederate attack on Fort Sumter had galvanized the North, and the response of the free states to Lincoln's proclamation was enthusiastic. Walt Whitman, who was in New York City at the time, said that the firing on the flag produced a volcanic upheaval in the North. War fever quickly spread north of the Mason-Dixon line, and the number of men who sought to enlist was astonishing. Northern governors sent pleas to the War Department requesting that their state's quotas of troops be increased so that they could officially recruit the overwhelming number of men who were stepping up to volunteer. 
In the free states, Democrats as well as Republicans rallied behind the president. On Sunday, April 14th, the day Fort Sumter was surrendered to the Confederates, Stephen Douglas went to the White House and met with Abraham Lincoln for two hours. The president showed Douglas the draft of the proclamation calling for 75,000 volunteers, and at the end of their conversation, Douglas promised his old adversary he would give the coming war his wholehearted support. The leader of the Democratic Party then immediately issued a statement to the press in which he said he would still oppose the Republicans on political questions, but that he would support all of the president's efforts to preserve the Union. Stephen Douglas left Washington and returned to Illinois a few days later. In Chicago, he told a huge crowd, quote, There are only two sides to the question. Every man must be for the United States or against it. There can be no neutrals in this war, only patriots or traitors, end quote. Douglas then threw himself into persuading Democrats in the Midwest to support Lincoln's efforts to save the nation, but the little giant was ailing, his health shattered by years of heavy drinking, and a month later, he was dead. Meanwhile, thousands of eager volunteers in the North continued to fill their state's quotas of recruits. At patriotic rallies in every village, town, and city in the North, the populace cheered the flag and enthusiastically proclaimed their determination to put down the dastardly rebellion. But in the eight slave states still remaining in the Union, Lincoln's call for troops received a very different response. Many people in the Upper South had been unwilling to join the seven Deep South states that seceded between Abraham Lincoln's election and his inauguration because they thought it was better to adopt a prudent, cautious, wait-and-see attitude. Rather than rush to disunion, they said, wait and see what Lincoln actually does once he's in office. But while they had counseled prudence and caution before, the president's April 15th call for 75,000 militia to suppress the rebellion changed minds in the Upper South quickly and dramatically. As secessionists had anticipated, the start of hostilities, combined with Abraham Lincoln's decision to meet force with force, led many wavering Southerners to cast their lot with the Confederacy. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Upon hearing of Lincoln's call for militia to suppress the rebellion, the governor of Missouri told the president, quote, Your requisition is illegal, unconstitutional, and revolutionary in its object, inhuman and diabolical. Not one man will the state of Missouri furnish to carry out any such unholy crusade, end quote. The governor of North Carolina declared, quote, 
I can be no party to this wicked violation of the laws of the country and to this war upon the liberties of a free people. You can get no troops from North Carolina. End quote. Kentucky's governor said, quote, Kentucky will furnish no troops for the wicked purpose of subduing her sister southern states. End quote. Tennessee's governor proclaimed that his state, quote, will not furnish a single man for the purpose of coercion, but 50,000 if necessary for the defense of our rights and those of our southern brothers, end quote. And then the governors of Virginia and Arkansas sent similar replies to Washington. Now, previously on the podcast, we touched upon how to use the word coerce or to talk about coercion was like waving a red flag in the face of the Southerners. And we'll bring that point up again here because, well, because it's obviously very relevant, as you can tell from the statements those governors hurled back at Abraham Lincoln after his call for militia to suppress the rebellion. You see, even those Southerners who didn't necessarily support disunion or believe there was a constitutional right to secession Most of them still thought the federal government had no right to resort to coercion, that is, to use force to subdue the seceded states and compel them to re-enter the Union. And so after Fort Sumter, with Abraham Lincoln's call for militia, it was largely this hot-button issue of coercion that pushed four of the other slaveholding states over the brink and into secession. To the people of the Upper South, Lincoln's April 15th proclamation made plain the fact that he intended to invade the Confederate states. For the eight slaveholding states that remained in the Union, they finally understood that their options had run out. They must choose one side or the other. Well, almost everyone realized they had to choose one side or the other. The slaveholding border state of Kentucky had a pro-secessionist governor, but Kentuckians themselves were divided. So the bluegrass state tried to declare itself neutral, but that was an unrealistic course, and it only lasted a relatively short time. So anyway. Right. And actually, the slaveholding states of Kentucky, Missouri, Maryland, and Delaware ended up staying in the Union. But after the shooting war started at Fort Sumter, and after President Lincoln's proclamation, then Virginia, Tennessee, Arkansas, and North Carolina decided to side with the Confederacy. And nowhere was that choice to go with the South more dramatic than in Virginia. Soon after Lincoln's election victory in November 1860, Virginia, the Old Dominion, had called for a state convention to meet and consider secession. The convention met in February 1861. Virginia's secessionists, led by ex-governor Henry Wise, were vocal and aggressive, but Virginia's unionists counseled caution. And so the debate over disunion dragged on for a month and a half before the issue was finally put to a vote on April 11th, and secession lost 88-45. to By that time, though, the crisis over Fort Sumter was obviously nearing its climax, so the convention remained in session to wait and see what happened. And sure enough, the Confederacy's victory at Charleston, combined with Lincoln's proclamation, changed matters entirely, and Virginia's convention moved quickly to adopt an ordinance of secession. But not quickly enough for ex-Governor Henry Wise. Purely on the authority of his personality, 
Wise secretly ordered state troops to seize the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry and also to capture the important Gosport Navy Yard. After issuing those orders, Wise, on April 17th, dramatically went before the convention, laid his watch and a huge horse pistol in front of him on the podium, announced the actions he had set in motion, and dared anyone to come forward and defy him. Well, no one cared to try to wrestle that pistol away from Henry Wise, but nevertheless, the resulting vote was by no means unanimous. Secession won, but the vote was 88 to 55. Most of the dissenting votes came from the delegates representing the mountain counties of western Virginia, where slavery had little hold. And, in fact, we'll cover this in a future episode, but that part of Virginia will eventually secede from the secessionists and form the new state of West Virginia in 1863. The capture of the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry and the seizure of the Gosport Navy Yard occurred before Virginia officially left the Union, because the Ordinance of Secession would not become final until ratified in a referendum on May 23rd. But for all practical purposes, Virginia joined the Confederacy on April 17th. In fact, on April 27th, Virginia invited the Confederate government to make Richmond its permanent capital. But to return for a moment to the referendum that did end up taking place on May 23rd, we should point out that at that time, the voters in western Virginia opposed secession by a margin of 3 to 1. News of Virginia's decision to leave the Union provoked jubilation throughout the Confederacy. Besides its historic political stature and prestige, the Old Dominion brought crucial resources to the Confederacy. Virginia's population was the South's largest, and her industrial capacity was nearly as great as that of the seven original Confederate states combined. Virginia's move also charted the course for three of the other slave states that were teetering on the brink of secession. In Tennessee, Governor Isham G. Harris, on May 1st, pressed the General Assembly into passing a vote of alliance with the Confederacy that was more than a bit sketchy constitutionally, but by the time a referendum was held on June 8th, the voters of Tennessee, like those of Virginia, were merely rubber-stamping what was already an accomplished fact. Although, significantly, the voters in mountainous East Tennessee, where slavery had little hold, cast 70% of their ballots against secession. In Arkansas, there were fewer ties to the North than in Tennessee, so the necessary measures were undertaken in a more straightforward manner, and a secession ordinance was passed on May 6th by the state convention, with a vote of 65 to 5. And then North Carolina, a state of relatively few great slaveholders and of many yeoman farmers, hesitated longer than anyone. But finally, ties of kinship and commerce, similar to Virginia's, won out. And by unanimous vote of the state convention, North Carolina seceded from the Union on May 20th. The importance of this second wave of secession really can't be overstated. The addition of Virginia... Arkansas, Tennessee, and North Carolina to the Confederate States of America added crucial manpower as well as substantial food producing and industrial resources to the Confederacy. And it was really the addition of that manpower and those resources that allowed the Southern Slaveholding Republic 
to have a fighting chance for success in its war for independence. But before we wrap things up, we need to point out that the slave states, the border states of Missouri, Kentucky, Delaware, and Maryland were fated not to secede. The refusal of the Delaware legislature to authorize a convention settled the issue there. In Maryland, there was an active section of the populace that favored secession, but Governor Thomas Hicks preferred neutrality, and so he stubbornly refused to call the legislature into session. And in both Missouri and Kentucky, the efforts of the pro-secessionist governors were thwarted. The Missouri Convention that was elected to consider secession voted to remain in the Union, and Kentucky proclaimed its neutrality between the two hostile sections. But some of you probably know that Missouri and Kentucky would each have a star on the Confederate flag since acts of secession were passed by delegations representing sections of both states. Both states were admitted to the Confederacy and both sent representatives to the Confederate Congress, but this movement only ever reflected the will of a minority of the populations of Missouri and Kentucky, and military realities would soon enough make their Confederate governments in exile irrelevant to the larger course of the war. And so with the secession of the four Upper South states, the battle lines became clearer. Men on both sides rushed to enlist, expecting to take part in a grand and glorious adventure, and there was much bravado and boasting. But few Americans, North or South, realized what the oncoming conflict would cost them. Most people anticipated a short war that would be settled by one large, decisive battle. Instead, the unprecedented carnage that unfolded over the next four years would haunt those who had been so eager to fight in 1861 and teach those who survived that war is never a grand and glorious adventure. They would learn instead that war is always a cruel, brutal, dirty, exhausting endeavor. They would learn that war means fighting, and fighting means killing. They would learn that war is hell. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is actually a couple of articles in some back issues of North and South magazine. Some of you guys know, I'm sure, that North and South recently ceased publication, which is more than a bit sad since throughout um, the course of its existence, it at times put out some really stellar stuff. But anyway, back in volume five, number four, which was the May 2002 issue, there's an article titled Virginia's Reluctant Secession. And then in volume 12, number one, that's the February 2010 issue, there's an article titled Secession in the Upper South. As always, you can find all of our book and other recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. As we wrap things up, we wanted to say thank you to everyone who has liked the podcast on Facebook recently. Each week, there's more of you joining our little community there, which we continue to think is pretty cool. We also want to give a big thank you to everyone who made a donation this past week to support the podcast. So thank you to Chris F. and Kathleen L. And to Michael M. and Didier V. And to Alan W. And last but not least, we want to thank all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War 
1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.